Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, J.B. McKinnon will join us to discuss the day the world stops shopping. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science show. Well, consumerism seems so much part of our daily life, then what would happen if it all stopped? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Mr. J.B. McKinnon. Mr. McKinnon is an award-winning journalist whose work has appeared in The New Yorker, National Geographic, and The Atlantic, as well as the Best American Science and Nature Writing Anthologies. Also the author of four books of nonfiction, including the best-selling Plenty, he has penned the new book, The Day the World Stops Shopping, How Ending Consumerism Saves the Environment, and ourselves. Mr. McKinnon, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok's Science Show. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Intriguing book you've put together here, The Day the World Stops Shopping. Curious how you became interested in this topic. Well, I've been writing about environmental issues for quite a long time, and I began to realize that if I went down to the root cause of almost any of the things that I wrote about, that cause was the amount of stuff we consume. But I also realized that we're caught in this kind of a dilemma where pretty clearly the the planet seems to need us to consume less, but the economy really needs us to to keep at it. And I wanted to find a way to look past that dilemma and see if we didn't consume so much, what might the world look like? Consumerism is certainly, it's not equally distributed across the globe. No, uh, it is primarily driven by what I call in the book, the rich world, which is the wealthy nations of the planet, but also the wealthiest people globally. So even in developing world nations, there's certainly a lot of overconsumption going on with a small class of people. It's still a global issue. It is a global issue in large part because people everywhere in the world are looking to the highest consuming individuals and aspiring towards that kind of lifestyle. So the choices we make around consumption in countries like the United States or Canada, where I live, across Europe, are influencing the entire planet and really pushing all of us towards a truly unsustainable future of consumption. It affects everything from the environment and climate through to things like how we use our time. Uh, More and more of our time is dedicated to earning and spending. We've lost things like the Sunday Sabbaths that used to be common across much of the Western world. And even we see holidays like Thanksgiving and Christmas being overtaken by shopping. And it affects us personally. The psychologists will tell you that uh, an orientation towards materialistic values, such as a real interest in income and possessions and status, is not making us happy. It's not contributing very much to our well-being. And yet we're constantly being driven towards it. What are the forces propelling us just to consume things that we really don't need? (laughs) You're exactly right. There's some really powerful forces that are compelling us to consume, in a sense. A $600 billion global advertising industry. Uh, That's one that we're all familiar with, I think. We're seeing coming out of the pandemic that 
you know, if economies slow down enough, then the government will cut checks to, to get us to go back to the mall. There's things like the celebrity culture, lifestyle journalism that's constantly reminding us of trends and so on, and even just our capacity to produce more and more goods with increasingly sophisticated technologies is just giving us an abundance of cheap stuff and hard for us not to buy it. What then would happen if we stopped shopping? <laughs> well, this is the, the kind of disaster movie part of the book where I stopped consumer spending globally on the written page by 25%. And, and certainly you see the first thing you see is a big crash in the economy. And so I think that to me is a really an indication of how dependent we are on consumption and consumerism at this point in history and how vulnerable that makes us. If we make the free choice to consume less, we have created a structure that really can't handle that. So that suggests to me that there's changes we can make in the system that might make it possible for all of us to reduce our consumption and not perhaps end up with the collapse of civilization. Started this book before the pandemic, and in a way, you got to see it play out a little bit. Did it surprise you what changed, what didn't, based on your investigation into this issue? The pandemic really confirmed most of the things that I've been researching. So, for example, one of the things we saw happen really abruptly was the sharpest drop in climate polluting emissions in recorded history. So, we saw the natural world kind of come to life, clear blue skies. We saw people turn surprisingly quickly from consumeristic and materialistic pursuits and values to things that are a little bit more inherently satisfying, like developing stronger relationships with people, even over Zoom and by telephone. We saw people developing new skills, investing in their physical health, spending more time in the natural world, things that we often don't have time for in ordinary life. We saw those sorts of things playing out. We did, of course, also see some pretty serious economic circumstances playing out with lost businesses and lost jobs, the other side of the consumer dilemma coin. If we just stopped shopping, we'd whittle out the things we really don't need and coming to the point where we have the necessities. Yeah, I think you really see that. Certainly, I've heard it in conversations around global travel, which already, you know, currently is a privilege of a very small number of people. And you do see people starting to ask themselves, well, you know, did I really get a lot out of my trip to a Venice that is thronging with tourists, where my engagement with the place was pretty trivial and pretty shallow? People who travel multiple times internationally a year, I think, are, you know, wondering, really, was that contributing a lot to their lives? And certainly, on the other side of that, you see a lot of people suggesting that the climate really can't... Uh, sustain that kind of global travel pattern for much longer. We seem to in a way be going back to our old habits. Do we really need to hit bottom before we can build something new? Coming out of the pandemic has been really interesting. One of the ways that a pandemic was quite different from my thought experiment is that in a thought experiment world that stops shopping, you don't lose your access to social life and to the people you care about. And so in the thought experiment version, that's kind of where you start to invest more of your time and energy and less into the world of possessions and income and, and status and so on. But 
consumption is what we know. And, and there are these powerful drivers that push us towards it. And coming out of the pandemic, we are pretty likely to see people get back to the familiar patterns. But I think they're going to do so with really mixed feelings. And that makes this a really important opportunity to have a bigger public discussion about consumption and what we want it to look like in our lives and what's the responsible level of consumption in terms of ecological effects, because that should really be at the center of our conversations around sustainability. And it really hasn't been for more than 20 years. The inconspicuous consumption that you talk about in your book. Yeah, inconspicuous consumption is, is really, really interesting. You look at something like air conditioning that I think at this point, a lot of us see it as just an inbuilt comfort in day-to-day life. We don't really know where it came from, but air conditioning originated as a product. It was salespeople went out there and tried to market air conditioners to people. And Americans were really reluctant to buy them for a long time. They had familiar patterns with how to deal with hot and cold. And it took decades to sell Americans on air conditioning. So it's interesting now to kind of keep an eye out for these sorts of things that are emerging as maybe a luxury or something that's a want and certainly not a need, but 20, 30 years out might be really, really something we don't even notice it because it's so completely built into daily life. And we saw this as well with traffic during the pandemic. A lot of people point to transportation as an inconspicuous form of consumption because we have to do it. We have to get in our cars and, and move around. But we saw when the cycle of earning and spending slowed dramatically in the pandemic, the traffic pretty much disappeared. So even that is deeply, deeply integrated into consumer culture. Being affected more rapidly because adapted very quickly to not having to travel. Yeah. And we see, we've seen that before. We saw after the 9-11 attacks, for example, it took years for people to return to high levels of air travel that they had before. And I suspect we'll see similar kinds of things now because people can pretty quickly adapt to a lower level of consumption and find satisfaction within that. I think there is actually some reluctance to go back to you know, that lifestyle that we sometimes describe as the rat race or the race to keep up with the Joneses. Though there's upsides to it, there's familiar downsides to it as well and a lot of, uh, a lot of stress and anxiety that people experience. In your research for the book, it took you all around the globe. You met a lot of different people. You count a lot of stories in your book. Were there moments where it got a global impact of this consumerist type culture? Yeah, there's a couple I'd maybe want to point to. One was a trip I did to the Kalahari Desert where I met with people whose cultural practice for 150,000 years has been to keep just a minimum of possessions. And what I found really important about that visit was it really drove home for me the idea that this is not hardwired into us. It's not a genetic certainty that we're going to become big consumers because those people live in the modern day like we do. They're aware of the wide world and all that it has in it. But a lot of people within that culture continue to choose to live um, a very minimal life in terms of, of material possessions. So that was one that I found really fascinating. Another encounter was with a Bangladeshi CEO of a factory that makes a lot of the clothes that are sold as fast fashion in places like North America and Europe. And I had gone to him expecting, I was looking for somebody who would, who would say, you know, we have to keep shopping because if we don't, then 
my people, my employees here in Bangladesh lose their jobs and we just have to keep going the way we're going. And in fact, he said the exact opposite. You know, he said that this constant acceleration towards more and more disposable clothing is costing his country environmentally tremendous stress because of the ever-increasing pace that clothes have to be produced. And maybe most interestingly, he said people, you know, he, he himself and the people who he employs, kind of insulting <laughs> that, that we will, that they put all of this effort into these things only to have people buy them for four or five dollars, wear them three times and throw them out. This is coming from Bangladesh, a country where they're not contributing a lot to the causes of climate change, but they're sure suffering the effects. So to hear perspectives like that from exactly the quarter that I would have expected the strongest defense for continuing consumerism was really striking to me. There's sort of an impermanence about a lot of the products that are to be used and disposed. Yeah, and that also points to the fact that there are things we can do, concrete things we can we can do to reduce consumption in the systems that we live in. So durable goods are a great example. Most of us, I think, are not big supporters of moving further in the direction of more and more disposable goods. And we can reverse that. We can take steps to start producing more durable goods again. And those steps could include things like lifespan labeling on products, mandating that companies make sure that their products are repairable rather than disposable. We can build the price, the cost of some of the environmental and social effects of products into the products themselves. There's a number of different concrete steps that we can take so that it isn't just always put onto the shoulders of the consumer to navigate this extremely complex global supply chain with every product they buy and somehow make perfect choices. Where do you see possibility for the system changing a de-consumerist society, as you put it? Well, I think we can advocate for those sorts of changes I described in terms of the way products are produced. We can look to governments, for example, to, to look at things like, well, if a lower consuming society produces maybe less wealth or less opportunities to, to work because there are fewer products and services being sold, then can we look at things like uh, work sharing? Can we shorten the work week or the work day? You know, are there steps like that that we could take that would allow something resembling a, an equal opportunity to work in the cash economy, but with those opportunities shared around in such a way that, that we are producing less? So at any level that I look at, I mean, certainly you start to see now businesses that are thinking about this, ranging from Patagonia to uh, another clothes maker called Eileen Fisher. Levi's is starting to take steps in this direction. You know, there are companies starting to say, how can we reduce not just the impact of the products we make, but the number of products, number of new products that we sell? And you see them moving towards models like reselling more of their secondhand clothes sharing economy type models. And so all of these sorts of system level things can be, if we do enough of them, then we end up with a system that where it's really easy for us to consume less rather than having to make all of these choices. It's still a great choice for individuals who are, there, there are good reasons for individuals to reduce their individual consumption. They might just want to save money. They might want to live more in keeping with their environmental values. They might want to wind down how much work they're doing in daily life. Lots of good reasons, but I think it's really the system level changes that can make the big difference. Indeed, indeed. If this were to happen, 
what do you think the world would look like 100 years, 1,000 years? <laughs> yeah, I'm always wary of sounding too utopian, but I think what we would see, certainly if we look at people who practice simpler living and have done so for decades, you do see that they generally they work less in the cash economy. They have a little more free time. They invest that time in more inherently satisfying things. They do tend to be very good at uh, relating to other people as human beings. They do tend to spend time in the natural world and things like this. I think you see those sorts of things play out. I think there's lots of opportunity for innovation in business. So it's, it's kind of hard to predict what it would look like, but there are centuries old companies that I spoke to that they've grown hardly at all over that, that time frame. So there is this model of business that isn't endlessly pursuing growth and instead is pursuing quality rather than quantity. So we'd see changes like that. And I mean, I think the one that seems like the surest bet is we would have a much more stable climate, a kind of magically more natural world, which you know, to many people, I think, is a really appealing uh, possibility for the future. Any final words regarding your book, The Day the World Stops Shopping? Maybe the, the one most important thing I'd want people to know about it is that I hope it's an entertaining read. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really interesting thought experiment to have worked through myself, and I've really tried to base it in true stories from history and the present day and you know, people who are living simply now and places that have gone through that in the past. Rather than a speculative journey, it's, a, it's an opportunity to really face up to what the reality of a deconsumer society might look like. We were just talking with Mr. J.B. McKinnon, the author of the new book, The Day the World Stops Shopping, How Ending Consumerism Saves the Environment and Ourselves. Mr. McKinnon, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Thanks so much. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.